This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best advice. It's Friday, June 1st. Happy summer, everybody. I am Chris Hardy. Today, we're talking to one of the creators of a new documentary that looks at the effects of the war on drugs on one young man who was manipulated by the system. Richard Wershey Jr., a.k.a. White Boy Rick, was known as the baby-faced teenage drug lord who ran Detroit's inner-city drug trade in the mid to late 80s. But what people knew about White Boy Rick and what was actually happening were a little bit different. So here's what was actually going on. Wershey was recruited through his father to be an informant for Detroit's local drug task force when he was only 14 years old. The agents cultivated him as a source and established him as a drug dealer for a long time, but then cast him aside when higher-ups found out that he was underage. When he was cut loose from the task force, pretty much all he knew was selling drugs. So that's what he did. He was busted less than a year later for eight kilos of cocaine and sentenced to life in prison. He was a young kid manipulated by a broken system, and now there's a documentary all about it. We've got Vice's Ankita Rao speaking with one of the creators of the doc, Seth Ferranti, about the film. This is a pretty personal case for you. You came across Richard Wershey's case in 2013. Tell me about what led you to take interest in this. Actually, I, I had heard about him as as far back as like um, 95, 96. You know, I got incarcerated in the Bureau of Prisons in 1993. And um, I was in SCI Manchester from 93 to 96 in Kentucky. Then I got transferred to SCI Beckley in West Virginia. And, you know, due to the, the geographical location, there was a lot of guys from Detroit. So I, I started hearing about this guy and, um, you know, white boy Rick, and he just had like this larger than life myth about him. He was like what they would call like a street legend, you know, or, or a hood star or whatever. But he, he just had like this real huge name. And I thought it was real weird because, I mean, he was like this white Caucasian kid who was supposedly a teenager and allegedly, you know, through all the myth and rumors, he was like, running the African-American underworld in Detroit in the, in the mid to late eighties, which, which I just found, uh, I mean, I found it, you know, dumbfounding and like astounding. As you mentioned, there was this mythology around white boy Rick, but that's not what actually happened. What did you find out? When Richard Wershey Jr. AKA white boy Rick was 14 years old, he started working as an informant for you know, the Detroit police and, and the feds and like the local drug task force. How this all transpired was his dad was actually FBI informant. You know, they lived, they lived down on the east side of Detroit, you know, in the hood. They were only the one of the only Caucasian families, you know, that stayed down there because his grandmother was born and raised there and lived across the street. So his dad didn't want to leave the grandmother. And the dad was working as an informant. He would actually like buy guns and, and silencers and stuff like that at gun shows. And then he would come back to the east side of Detroit and he would sell them on the underground black market. And then what he was doing, he was double dipping because his dad would sell the guns to the guys. But then he was an FBI informant. So he would give the information to the FBI who he sold the guns to. So he was getting paid, you know, twice for the same, you know, once for the guns and then once for the information. And when the whole kind of crack era started, the mid 80s, like 85, 86, 
the the Detroit police and the, and the FBI, they wanted to know what was going on on the east side. So, you know, they were kind of going to all their informants and trying to gather information. And Rick's dad, you know, he, he wasn't out in the streets. He, he didn't know anything about that. He just sold guns to people. But some of the questions that the feds were asking, that the FBI guys and the local police were asking, Rick was right there with his dad. And Rick knew the answers because Rick was out in the streets. You know, he was playing basketball with all the other young kids and the young teenagers, you know, hanging out, riding bikes and doing stuff that little kids do. He, he knew all the stuff, you know, because kids at that age, 13, 14, 15, they're talking about what's going on. They're talking about, you know, who has the nice cars, who has the money, who's running, you know, the different blocks or the different streets on the east side. So he was kind of privy to all that information. And when the narcotics task force found out that information, then they started using him through the dad. So what happened after that? Well, eventually... They busted the biggest drug dealer on the east side. His name was Johnny Curry. And when they when they busted Johnny Curry, when when the case started come to trial, the defense lawyers, you know, they were filing stuff. They wanted to know where was all this information coming from? You know, and as soon as it started getting close to where they might have to expose who their source was, they cut them loose because it's it's illegal. You can't use a juvenile as an informant. I mean, that's that's like so like illegal. You know, Rick told me one day, you know, they were calling him every day. And then one day he just never heard from him again. And they they kind of trained him into being a drug dealer. You know, like the Fed sent him out to Vegas, you know, when he was like like 15 or 16 years old. They sent him out to the Vegas for the Marvin Hagler, Thomas Hearns fight, you know, because they knew Thomas Hearns, the hitman's from Detroit. So they knew all the big drug dealers would be out there. So they sent him out, you know, they gave him fake ID, they gave him money, and that kind of got him established, you know, because that kind of made, you know, people were like, you know, who is this guy, man? Maybe this guy, you know, is a big drug dealer. So they created this big drug dealer, but then when it was about to come to light that they were using an underage informant, then they kind of just kicked him to the curb and didn't want to have anything to do with him. And Rick found him in this situation where, where he knew the people where he could get the cocaine. He knew the people to sell it to. You know, the feds didn't want to mess with him more. The law enforcement didn't want to have anything to do with him. So he just started, you know, selling drugs, what what they trained him to do. And, you know, from, from that went to just like when he was 17, about eight or nine months later, he got busted under the 650 Lifer Law in Michigan, which meant if you had over 650 grams of cocaine, you got a life sentence. This story is wild. I mean, when you hear it, it's almost like you can't even imagine that this is real and that our government was part of this. And I think you had the right instinct, which is we need to make this a film. What was that process like of turning your reporting and your correspondence with White Boy Rick into a documentary? I actually interviewed the director, Sean Reck. His first film was documentary was a murder in the park where he got out a, a wrongfully convicted guy. He had got a lot of, you know, accolades and, and success from that. And um, I, I'd actually interviewed him for a murder in the park. And when I met him, we, we started talking and I, I wanted to make films. I wanted to move into that world and do documentaries and stuff. So uh, he had already heard about the white boy Rick case, you know, but then when he found out, you know, that I knew White Boy Rick and I was corresponding with him. Then it was like, you know, we formed a partnership. And um, I remember sitting in his office. We just started out. We basically, you know, we made like an outline, you know, three acts, like what I thought the story was about, who I had access to interview. And it just went from there. And um, he really, he kind of, he mentored me 
you know, I wrote and produced it with him, but you know, it's, he's a director, so it's his film. It's not like it's my film, but I played a part of it. We started working on this in the, the summer of 2015 is when we first started talking about it. This is sort of something we've been seeing more of with podcasts like Serial or the Netflix documentary series Making of a Murderer, where it's kind of sometimes up to journalists or writers or documentary creators to put the justice system in the limelight and say this person didn't have a fair trial or this person was wrongfully accused. What role do you think this film plays and sort of holding that justice system accountable. Oh no! I mean, the, the, our our goal when we made the film was was to get Rick out. We wanted to put enough pressure, and we we wanted to you know shine a light bright enough, you know, because he he was doing a life sentence as, as a juvenile. He got a life sentence when he was seventeen. In two thousand twelve, the Supreme Court said that was illegal, you know, but yet he was still sitting in prison. So he was he was just kind of buried in there. But uh, there's this, this underbelly to capitalism, you know, where, where the people on the bottom, the people of color, people from different countries and, and people, you know, like Rick's family who were at a poverty level, you know, where, where these people, it's like they just get ground underfoot and, and nobody really cares. So I think it's really important to show about the wrongfully convicted, to show about the over sentence to show about the people you know that are getting a raw deal the people that are continuing to get a raw deal the documentary man i think it really sheds light not only on police corruption you know the dirty secrets of the drug war but you know ju- just what our government has done in the past and what our government has gotten away with because if we say we're america if we're america you know land of the free home of the brave and all that we represent that to all the other countries of the world but we got to represent that to our own people first and foremost where is white boy rick now he's in he's in florida he got paroled he got paroled from the life sentence in michigan last july but he had, he had caught a, a case where he he facilitated you know, he, he just made some calls and, and somebody had like a stolen car that was brought up from Miami to Detroit, you know, and, and he made it so some of his relatives could get the car real cheap. And what they did just because like his name and his notoriety, you know, they put him on the case and they gave him five years for the case for just making a phone call while he was in prison where the ringleader of the stolen car ring in Miami got like less time than him. So it's, it's just another case. And we also discovered while we were making the documentary that when all that went down, the authorities in Detroit were calling down to Florida and saying, you know, this is a bad guy, you know, make sure you go extra hard on him. It's totally unfounded. And it, it plays into this whole thing, like this vendetta that's been against him for like the last 30 years. Where can we see the film? It's on iTunes exclusive right now. It'll be on Google Play and everywhere else is VOD shortly thereafter. And then eventually towards next Christmas, it'll um, be on a major streaming network. To read Seth's full interview, go to vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. And tune in again on Monday for another Vice Guide to Right Now.